This episode is gonna be a good one. I gotta tell you, we got into what he has seen out in the trenches working with over a thousand brands in the CPG and beverage space, uh, what makes or breaks good companies, some darlings he's seen along the way and some duds, uh, and really deep into the thinking that you need to have to be a successful brand in the space. I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. And uh, wherever you're listening to this episode or watching it, be sure to subscribe, be sure to sign up, be sure to tune in for other great episodes just like this. You can also go into the show notes and sign up for our email newsletter. We're definitely gonna be doing some unique things, giving you some tidbits that I think you can use along the way. So make sure you sign up and that you don't miss out. Hey everybody, this is Consumer Package. I am your host, Adam Brown. And on today's episode, we have Ryan Luendin. He is a partner at the Gianuzzi Group, a Tulane grad, a Brooklyn Law School alum. Little known fact, I'm an alum there for 29 days. Uh, so we have that in common. And uh, a New York City resident like myself, we're here filming today live in New York City. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Ryan, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. Um, and uh, so in your own words, uh, what does the Gianuzzi Group do? Right, so look, the Gianuzzi Group's a law firm, you know, first and foremost, and what, and you know, that also sort of adds sort of a business aspect to it, right? We're, we're deep in the consumer products industry. Uh, but what sort of we offer that really no one else does is that we sort of are a start to finish solution, right? Like we can get involved with you kind of like when you're starting up pre-revenue revenue, um, but our experience is all the way down the line until a sale of the company. So, you know, the gap in the market we sort of fill is there's the big guys that sort of can't work with you early and there's the startup lawyers who might not have the experience and the sort of foresight down the line to give you that strategy and advice and work with you on the bigger deals. We're a solution that like you can come work with us, grow with us, you know, seven, eight years through every sort of step along the way um, until, the, until an eventual exit. And so what we're adding along with like that normal legal work is we're adding like the insight and the experience of, hey, I'm doing my series A. What do I need to give away or not give away or negotiate, you know, not just to finish my series A, which is obviously super important, but to put me in a better position for my series B, my series C and my exit now. And so it's that sort of down the line experience and sort of insight that we offer from an early stage and a late stage that really sets us apart from everywhere else. That makes a lot of sense. And it's funny, um, somebody asked me recently, like, what would I like to do if I wasn't doing what I what I do now? And I feel like I would like your job. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, so, you know, I went to law school 29 days and uh, I had an older brother who also went to Brooklyn Law School. And, you know, like 15 of his friends that went to law school had all stopped practicing law. Right. And so they're like, what are you doing? And I said to myself, like, I don't want to be a lawyer but I wanna work with entrepreneurs, I wanna start companies, and as I've gotten to know you and learned a bit about you, um, that's exactly what I would wanna do, like work with these stages, these brands, it's why I chose CPG Beverage and Spirits, you are in that, in that camp uh, every single day, um, and so I love it, I'm, that's why I'm so thrilled to have you here as a guest, because it's kinda of like looking through that lens of what I could've maybe done, <laughs> maybe I should go back to law school, um, and on top of that, what I think is really interesting is that lawyers are not ultimately like the sexiest personas in a space but sure. when it comes to you in the space like you it's a small community and like you know everybody everywhere i go i see you i see you liking stuff on instagram i see like you have some connection i think i heard you say you've worked with over a thousand clients like in and around this space like at some point somewhere you've probably sat at a table with a million people in this space 
Um, and uh, I just think it gives you like insane insight into this vertical. And so um, I think the guests are gonna get a lot out of this. And I just wanted to throw that out there um, that uh, I think it's a, a good space to be in. And I think we can learn a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, one, I really appreciate that. And, and I agree, it's a small community. It's um, a really interesting community. It's something that, you know, myself and my partners and everybody at my firm is super, super passionate about. And, you know, this really is like a life. This is our life. Like, you know, my best friends are in this industry. You know, I spend all my time there. It's not sort of a nine to five job for me. Like right. this is, you know, this community is something that I like is, is such, it's my life. It's, it's, I'm inextricably intertwined with it, right. you know, on every level. And, you know, that's what makes this really interesting. It's the law part is great and I love it. I'm super passionate about it, but you know, what's really sort of what's great about my practice is you have this satisfaction of sort of working with someone early and then sort of growing and helping them every step of the way and sort of being like, you know, like, like, like an outside member of the management team, right? Knowing, you know, having this great history with the company and sort of helping them, you know, keep from making a bunch of mistakes along the way, hopefully to a sort of a great success. Right. So it's it's very personally satisfying. Yeah, and, we, and I, I think we subscribe to the same philosophy of like helping them not step in the puddles that everyone else has stepped in before. And I think there's a general stereotype, but in this like better for you CPG and beverage space, like it's generally like good people trying to make like good products that are yeah. gonna help you live longer. Um, I've worked in other verticals where it's not so much so. So I think it's just like a, a friendly safe space and that's why you find friends like that in this business. It's an amazing industry, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a positive industry. It's an industry where generally you're trying to do something good. Like there's some good to be done. You're trying to do something better. And you have these like-minded people that, you know, are all positive, they're all collaborative. You know, I mean, an outsider in this industry, if you get in, you're a good person, you're gonna sort of, you're gonna make a lot of friends and a lot of connections really quick because everyone's really open. And, and again, it's very, very collaborative. And, and like you said, most industries are not like that, you know? So um, it's great to be able to do something every day that sort of makes you feel good at the end of the day about helping some of these people and these brands and hopefully some of these causes move forward. Totally. All right, let's get into some of these questions. So um, in looking at deals at every stage of a brand's life cycle, what would you say stands out as the biggest reason for success or failure? Sure, sure. So, I mean, you know, you can't discount sort of like access and resource, right? I mean, um, there's usually some edge one of these companies has in terms of succeeding, whether it's like, hey, I've got access to a lot of money or I've got a lot of relationships, I've got a connection at a sort of co-packer, I've got some innovation here that's setting me apart. Um, and, you know, leveraging those obviously helps for the success. Um, but I'd say in terms of sort of like, personal characteristics, um, you know, obviously drive, but like ability to sort of execute and to do what you say as a personal characteristic and as a company sort of sort of ethos, I think that really sets people far and apart, sort of, hey, this is what I'm gonna do, this is the time frame I'm gonna do it on, and then actually doing it. Um, you know, so many of these, the success in these brands is sort of built on momentum. And, you know, it's, if you're like, hey, you know, these are our new products coming out, in the fall, if they don't come out and the buyers sort of can't get them after you told them, um, you lose a little bit of credibility, you lose a little bit of buzz. You know, some of these products are sort of very, you know, they're bleeding edge. Being first to market is, you know, so important sometimes. And, you know, if you got a, a you know, a keto product coming out and keto's sort of on fire and it takes you another sort of 18 months to get it done, 
People might be less interested in that. People right. might be on to the next thing. So being able to do what you say and being able to do it on the time frame that you, you know, say you're going to do it on, I've just seen sort of across the board when I've seen successes and, and I've seen hundreds of them at this point, you know, I do find they have that common denominator, both as sort of, you know, personal characteristic from the founders, but also sort of an ethos from the company, you know, working together. Right. And would you say uh, vitamin water aside, is there any like just brand that came in and just out, just punched above their weight, just like crushed and outperformed that you were just like blown away by how that jockey and horse executed? Yep. Um, yeah, a few of them. I mean, you know, it's not, it's funny. I've been um, thinking a lot about like, you know, sort of the late 2000s and the last financial crisis when I was, uh, you know, when I was much earlier in my career. And, uh, you know, I remember Vitacoco, right, at the time was, you know, one of three. There was ONE, there was Eco, and there's Vitacoco. And I remember, you know, Mike Kerbin was there and, you know, he said, look, Coke and Pepsi came around the coconut water sort of circle. And I spoke to both of them and, you know, Coke made a bet and Pepsi made a bet and I'm sort of the odd man out, right? And, you know, he, at that point, like people were looking at coconut water, like, oh, Vitacoco is gonna get left in the dust. And, you know, what he did is something really innovative is in terms of celebrities, he kind of made the next evolution in sort of celebrity partnerships when, you know, he developed a, uh, a funding round that was led by, you know, Madonna and Ashton Kusher and Demi Moore and a bunch of other people. And they invested in the company and they did a press release about it. And, you know, he found and innovated another way to sort of move everything forward. Right. And, um, you know, from there, I think, took the lead and has never given it back, right? right. Um, despite sort of the fact that there was no money around, despite the fact that sort of the majors had sort of, you know, picked other horses, um, and the fact that, you know, everybody had written that brand off, you know, he dug down, found angles that people weren't looking at, found ways to get ahead and sort of kept, kept doing that over and over. Right. Um, you know, more recently, um, I'd say, uh, there's a great company called Your Super, which is these, um, they're based in Venice. Um, these great superfood mixes. And uh, it's, it's founded by a, a couple, um, both from Europe. Um, and they had the company in Europe and they were doing, you know, decent revenues. And, you know, they came and sat with me in the conference room and they said, hey, you know, I'm bringing this to the US and this is my plan. And, you know, I'm gonna, you know, sort of leverage these things. And, uh, you know, I, I believed them, but, you know, I also saw they had competition against tons of different powders, you know, they're a European business, they were coming to the US, which, you know, works, but sort of marginally. And, um, you know, what they did is they came to the US and they raced out to sort of millions of dollars of revenues, kind of right off the bat, um, kind of skewed like all the sort of normal conventional stuff, no retail, direct to consumer. And, uh, you know, what they were really able to do that I didn't see at the time, which is such a testament to them, is they were able to build like this amazing community around the products, right? And they were able to build this amazing like fan base based on their sort of ethos of sort of really clean ingredients, um, traceability, you know, sourcing from sort of like really um, non-commercial places and having sort of the best quality, and then sort of tying that into here's some recipes, here's how you you know here's how you integrate this into your life a bunch better you know, digitally. And that fan base is what really propelled them and really made that success happen. Where if you looked at sort of the other metrics, there wasn't anything really setting them apart. Right. Uh, outside of the work and sort of the way they were able to mobilize their their fan base and build a fan base. So, right. 
Those, those are two great examples. And I learned pretty early on when I got in this space um, that it was like, if, if you have a beverage brand, it's either Coke, Pepsi, or Dr. Pepper, yep. or you're out, right? Yeah. And I was like, whoa, like that's crazy, this this exit. And that's, that's a certain goal, right? And I love hearing a story about somebody that just, just not getting a date with one of those two players yeah. and went out and did it. And then the other one I think is like the real truth in this business, like, you know, and I don't know the brand and I don't know where they're at now, but like, what's their narrative? It, you know, they're obviously real. They obviously care about it and they're passionate about it. So they're not faking, like, how can we market this thing we don't believe in? It's probably coming out of their pores. Mm -hmm. So the founder story, the recipes, the way of life really resonates. And it might be okay to be a $10 million business or a $50 million business and not ever necessarily sell out and have that huge exit. And so I think brands really have to think about like, what is the end goal? Like anything else that you would think about in life, what is the outcome that you're looking for? And then what is the playbook of anyone that has maybe done that before? Yep. And then can you put out effort that would be commensurate with that and make that happen? Yeah, right? uh, look, and, and I totally agree with that. And I think one of the hardest things, you know, uh, an early stage sort of fast growing brand can do is make, is is the that planning, that high level planning, right? Because so many people are worried about, hey, you know, how am I gonna make payroll? And then so many people are worried about, hey, how am I gonna make my next round of financing? Like, what's right. that gonna look like? Where am I gonna find that? Uh, it's easy to like, it's easy to lose track of those bigger picture things. But, but today, you know, in a day where, you know, fast growth, high, top line growth is valued less and being sort of more of a stable and you know somewhat profitable or pathway to profitable business is valued more by acquirers um, and where sort of like your fan base and your customer base and your platform is more and more becoming what's important than just you know looking at your top line sales keep like having that sort of high level perspective the whole time when you have all these sort of short-term goals dragging you down, I think is one of the hardest things to do, but also probably one of the most important to long-term success. Totally. You know, not just selling the company, but also attracting all those partners along the way, whether it's investors or sort of advisors or, or uh, sales partners, you know, bringing people into that fold. Right. Um, you need that story and you need that sort of corporate ethos to really attract and motivate and get people passionate about it. Yeah. Um, it's a good segue to the next question I was going to ask, you know, at what stage does a brand need to get legal representation or, um, and I, I, you guys are lawyers, but like, it sounds like you're more than lawyers. It's like legal and some advice, you know, investing and like, it's thinking more than just what you would think of a lawyer. So how early should someone get someone in their camp that thinks that way and could potentially help? Yeah. Um, I'd say, so I think the answer to how early, I mean, is as early as possible. But, but I think the real like question to ask is how much of legal representation do I need, right? Like, and how early? Right. Um, because look, money not being an issue, you want to bounce everything off somebody who's got, who can mitigate risk and help that, but money's always an issue, right? So how do you balance, hey, I need someone to help me keep from making a mistake early, which could prove fatal or compoundingly like bad for me down the line versus, you know, I don't want to spend a ton, a ton of money on people, right? And, you know, one thing, you know, I do and, and lawyers in my firm do, which I, I think is interesting, unique is like, I have different ways of thinking, right? When I'm working with my clients that are, you know, billions, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue or value, there's a certain type of lawyering that you do because it's necessary. You gotta cross every T, you gotta dot every I, you gotta act like a big firm lawyer and you gotta sort of check every single box, right? 
but that's not possible for a bootstrapping small company, right? And so what we also do is I have another way of thinking, which is like, all right, how do we get you from point A to point B without doing anything fatal, right? And how can you sort of like move the ball without making a mistake that like later on is gonna cost you investors or prevent you from being acquired? And that's almost like I, I equate it to like, like treating you like a hot stove. Like I try to touch them as little as possible, um, but just try to keep them from big, making the big mistakes. Right. Um, and you know, and finding an advisor who can help you prevent from doing that. And sometimes it might not even be a lawyer. It might be an entrepreneur who's done it before, right? And who's right. come across issues like, hey, you gotta own your recipes or else you can't sell your company. Right. Or like, you know, hey, you gotta, file your trademark now because if somebody swoops in and steals it in Australia or something like that, you're gonna have less value. Um, it can obviously be a lawyer, but having someone to help you um, prevent making mistakes in areas that you're not strong in, I think is paramount and paramount from the beginning. I love it. Um, all right, so uh, where do you think Brian's dropped the ball when it comes to raising capital? Yeah, so, I mean, there's obviously, uh, there's a, tons of things you can do wrong in raising capital. I, I think one of them is sort of waiting uh, to your cash burn or to your reserves are too low, right? Um, you know, there's always the give and take, right? So you wanna raise money when you're doing the most you can in sales to get the best valuation um, so you have the least dilution, right? And, and that's great. And you should always do that for the most part. but you know, a round of financing is not the end game, right? Being acquired is eventually the end game. So being successful in a round of financing that sets you up for failure in the future is like winning a battle but losing the war, right? So you gotta keep a line of sight towards the end game at all times. Um, and what a lot of brands do is they focus on, you know, that financing in front of them. They wait till they're running on fumes and then they go out to raise money. And then oftentimes they're not in a good position to leverage, right? Like a, an investor comes by and offers them sort of like terms that they really don't want to live with. But at that point, they don't have any cash reserves right. to continue going. Um, you know, they try to stretch themselves too thin. So right. I usually tell people, if you're going to raise money, give yourself like five to six months, like burn, you know? So that way you can put your materials together. You can start having conversations with people. And then, you know, hopefully with, two or three months leadway, you can start having real conversations and negotiating. And that just gives you time. If something goes real sideways, hopefully you can recover for, from it. Right. But um, you know, most people, again, they're trying to stretch themselves to get that you know, million or $2 million more in valuation to prevent the dilution. And sometimes it really backfires on them. Right, and I guess on that same point, when it comes to equity, right? Like uh, we've talked about people throwing around equity in, in, in lieu of that. Um, what do you think is like one hot take of like warning or advice about throwing equity around? Yeah, so when you're gifting equity or you're giving equity for services, um, I think like the most important thing to do is try to structure it in a way that the person proves it, right? So not having the person like prove it is one of the biggest mistakes, right? And, and I see it all the time, like um, a, a small brand comes across someone who's like a hotshot head of sales from a company that like, you know, is, is aspirational to them, right? And they're pulling them over and, you know, the salary's out of the league, so they're trying to make it up in equity. 
And you know, the salesperson's like, look, I'm stepping down on a smaller company. I need it all up front. You got to give it to me right now. I, I'm not going to vest it in. I'm not going to, you know, no sales incentive in. And I'd say like nine times out of 10, I've seen people get disappointed by that scenario because either the person sort of going from a big company to a small company can't execute with a small team and no budget, or, you know, it's just, or in their mind, what they thought was gonna, you know, where they thought the ball was gonna be moved to, you know, it only got half as far, right? There's so much buyer's remorse. So I always tell people, look, if you're giving equity for something, you know, have it vest in or have it be performance-based or have it have it so that like you're getting the benefit of the bargain. It, you know, if you're hiring an employee, you know, and you're paying them $200,000 a year, you'd never give them $100,000 the first day they came to work, right? right? right. Non-recoupable yeah, for coming yeah. to work the first day. Sure. So you wouldn't, I don't know why you'd vest in half their equity on day one either, right. even though lots of people ask for it. Um, I, and I think it's very telling, like when you're, when you're, talking about incentive equity and someone saying, look, I need all up front, I need half up front. You know, it's not worth my time to deal with like hitting incentive points or not. I, it's too, you know, it's too complicated. They're sort of telling you right off the bat, like, hey, like if it's not worth my time to deal with vesting the equity on, on performance, they're probably not gonna put in the effort totally. and the time needed to get the results that you're looking to get. Totally. Um, so yeah, uh, conditioning any sort of grant of equity on getting back what you thought you were gonna get back, I think saves you a lot of heartbreak, a lot of remorse, and a lot of dilution in the long run. Right, and I think this is one of those things for me, because I've done some of these sweat equity deals and most of them don't work out. And I find that you have a lot of good entrepreneurs in this business, so like they're generally good jockeys, maybe they even have a good idea, but they're not super sophisticated in a lot of these different intangible areas. So they almost like, it would be like me talking to my financial planner about like some advanced financial instrument right. that I don't really know about. Yeah. Um, I actually, as confident as I am and, and cocky, I go super dumb. Cause I'm like, <laughs> tell me everything I need to know about this IRA versus that. Cause like, I don't, I don't want to flex. Maybe I did when I was like younger, but like, I don't want to flex on something I don't understand. Like this is really important. And then there's like some strategic salesmanship that I think maybe comes with years some gray hairs um, that, you know, and maybe that's why you need representation. Like somebody like you could be like, listen, before you just throw around equity, like think about it. there's other vehicles, there's other incentive-based things yep. that you could do. I think they just go in and flex and be like, look, I got you, I'm gonna give you equity. And they don't even sell the dream. Um, and then they end, it ends up, has to be the vast majority biting them in the future, yeah. right? Yeah, Look, I mean, I think equity and everything else for an entrepreneur, you need to put people around yourself who fill in your weaknesses, right? right. If you're coming from a marketing background, you need somebody who can help fill in the sales and the operations and then the corporate and the equity and the financing stuff. If you come from a finance background, you need someone who knows marketing. You need someone who knows, you gotta put people around you that fill in those weaknesses. And um, I mean, the equity and the financing piece is, is huge, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I find it is something that oftentimes gets overlooked as part of running the company just because people figure it's a necessary evil. I'll find an investor, they'll tell me what I'm worth, we'll come to an agreement and we'll go forward that way. And, and that's just a, it's just a mistake in thinking. I, I, I'm not exactly sure why it's dropped off, but um, I think fundraising and sort of conservation of equity is probably one of the top four most important things an entrepreneur can do um, to become ultimately successful. Right, makes sense. Um, so what's your favorite or least favorite part of your job? Yeah, I mean, favorite part of my job is easy. Like I get to be like, really get my hands in the dirt um, with lots and lots of different companies. 
um, sort of be big parts of lots and lots of different companies around a, like a broad sort of spectrum and a broad category um, and sort of be part of these success stories. And it's super fun and it's, you know, fast paced and it's exciting and, you know, it's great and it's sort of super rewarding. And, and again, as I said, I get to be like interface with all these great people in this industry. Um, least favorite, I guess is, you know, I mean, look, I mean, I mean, the, it's probably like, like most things, what, part of what's great is part of what's bad. I mean, obviously, you know, legal business is tough. It's a lot of hours. It's a lot of managing people. Um, you know, it, like I said, this is my life. There's never really a vacation. There's never a break from it. Um, there's never really unplugging when you're sort of working with this many people, right. um, which, which is sort of the other side of the coin. Um, but I'd say, you know, probably my least favorite then for sort of the, you know, the work aspect is, um, you know, is not everybody succeeds, right? And sort of helping people, you know, um, land in sort of the best worst position that they can land in, right? Yeah. Uh, you never, and, and look, I love to do it and I care about all the people, all my clients and like, I obviously do it for them, but you never like to see that, right? Like you wish everybody could succeed, but unfortunately they can't. Um, and so sort of emotionally, that's probably the worst part, right? Like totally. the people you really care about and love and you've worked with and that have really sort of given it their all, uh, not them not getting the result that they wanted one way or another. Um, to me, that's, you know, that's, that's the part that is probably the most taxing. Most yeah. I, I would say I'm on the same page with you and I'm definitely less so because you, you know, from the legal point of view, you're in there, you're like really letting your hair down. You probably even know more than I do about some of these brands, but, um, I think it's similar a lawyer in the service providing that I do or a doctor. I talk to my brother, like the upside is all the great stuff that you do yeah. for people. The downside is like the death and like cancer and right. Right. And that's most of it. Cause it's like so many scary things out there. So a lot of these companies, I would imagine you work with and it's like, ah, oh, like, you know, you might know they're not, they're about to not make it and you see that coming or they went yeah. out of business and you have to like wrap things up or close them down and unwind the business as a, as a lawyer. And so, um, that's gotta be super taxing. Yeah. I mean, look, these, what, what's beautiful about sort of independent, fast growing consumer goods businesses is that like, they're not businesses for the people who start them. They're like their children, right? Like their hopes and dreams are wrapped up. Right. In them. And, um, and when those things go great, it's amazing. And it's like so exciting and it's so cool. And like, you know, you feel so great for all those people. And then when they don't go right, I mean, it's, it's really sad and it's, yeah. you know, it's tough. Um, for sure. You know, so, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a doctor on a, on a surgery totally. table, <laughs> totally. you know, but, um, but it's still, it, it's still sad and still tough. Agreed. Um, all right. So let's jump into some of these unpackaged questions. So you went to Tulane, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and do you think there's anything specifically that like you learned at Tulane that set you up for today? Uh, absolutely. So like, I mean, well, maybe not Tulane, but like living in New Orleans, right? So like, um, you know, when I was in New Orleans, I used to uh, work at this bar called F&M's, um, which is like, you know, kind of a, like a local bar, a locally famous bar. And, you know, I was a manager there for, you know, a year or two. And um, I remember sort of starting to see and this is sort of like the early 2000s, I started to see sort of the change in people's consuming habits um, because that was sort of around the time where like more craft beers were coming out and sort of more crafty alcohol offerings were coming out. And from sort of the, the imbibing perspective, I started to see, so like people weren't, didn't want a Miller Lite anymore. You know, they wanted an Abita Amber. And I started to see people sort of coming in being like, hey, this is my new sort of hybrid alcohol that I've got. You know, that's like a little dip, that's not a, that's not a uh, absolute vodka or a Tangeray gin, right? right? 
And so my interest in sort of um, like independent and sort of fast growing consumer products really started from there. Got it. Um, and you know, that and that just New Orleans in itself is just such a, you know, it's a food and beverage city, right? Right. Um, that people really take food and imbibing and drinking and they take it really seriously. Yeah. There's so much focus and love and attention spent to it. Did you know um, that going in and that's why you- I did not. Okay. No, I didn't. Um, right. You know, uh, I, I did not. And so uh, it was surprising and it was a great education. It was a great education in food and it was a great education in sort of enjoying and loving food and drinks. And yeah, fun, so, fun place to go to school. The best. For sure. The best. Um, okay, so um, we're, you know, we're shooting this in the middle of this pandemic situation. So what do you think? What is your hot take that's going to come from this pandemic specifically for this business? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that and a lot of talking about that. Um, you know, what's interesting about food and beverage is that um, while I think there's a rough road ahead for everybody, uh, food and beverage has you know, still continued, um, especially health, better for you food and beverage. Right. Um, you know, they say like, there's a saying like, um, you know, vice is something that is like the one thing that doesn't decrease in sort of a recession. I, I do think, and that's because it's sort of like, it's a little excursion for people, like gets them out of their head. It's not that expensive. I, I think health and wellness is something that today um, is in a similar vein. You know, I think in somewhat it's recession proof because, you know, people have started to see health and wellness as something that's integral to sort of an escape for them. You know, they've moved, there's less people drinking, there's more people sort of doing yoga at home. I see people, you know, on Instagram using uh, wine bottles as weights as much as I see them drinking from them, right? right. Um, so I think that there's gonna be a demand for food and beverage, especially better for your food and beverage throughout this. Um, but I think the change is gonna be in sort of how people get it how people buy it and you know how you know how often they consume it and how they learn about it. Um, so I do think, um, and we're talking about this a little bit before the cameras run, I, I think you know, building a digital presence and a digital platform and sort of a deeper brand ethos is, is gonna be sort of necessary for these brands out here. Um, people want more from their brands. People are starved for attention right now. They're starved for content. Uh, they start for, you know, just general stimulation and sort of things that are offering sort of something bigger than just um, than just the occasion that you're using it with right. are, are going to really resonate with people and, and sort of, you know, offerings that sort of can sort of they can integrate into their life and sort of, you know, from a functional standpoint, uh, I think are going to resonate with people. Right. Um, so I think the brand platforms are going to become more and more important. Um, and obviously the digital side, because I think, you know, retail is, you know, going to be iffy for a while, um, while we're in quarantine or going back in quarantine and more out of quarantine, I think, you know, the way we, the way we shop is going to be sort of different just from, uh, you know, how packed are those stores? Is it right. a 25% capacity? Are people hustling you and hustling you out? Um, do you want to do that? Or when they're offering curbside pickup, do you want to do that when you can get so many things shipped to your house? Um, so I think that sort of natural progression that's been happening over the past, you know, 10, 15 years of, you know, uh, just experiencing and discovering things, you know, digitally, uh, as opposed to sort of in the store is going to accelerate and, right. and is accelerating now uh, because of this. Do you, do you think you need investors to win? No, but I think for the most part, you'd, I think for most businesses to win, 
you're going to need investors to to put the capital in. Uh, I think that there's a small subset of businesses and brands that are profitable enough and that are willing to sort of grow slowly enough, right? That you don't need to take in money. Right. But but again, that's signing up maybe for like a 20 year play, right? Right. Or a 30 year play right. rather than a five or a seven, right? Which might be okay. Which might be fine, yeah. right? Like that's a real, that's a standard typical like business school, hey, I make a profit and I take the profit and I take some out and I reinvest it. That's totally. a standard type business. Um, now, if you want to build a brand, then you need investors. Right. If you want to build, you know, race up, grab market share, have everybody educated about you, you know, do do everything right off the bat, then you definitely need investors. Unless you're funding it, you know, indefinitely yourself, right? right? But then you're the investor. Right? Right, that's true. <laughs> um, but but outside capital uh, for brands, absolutely. Outside capital for a consumer business, uh, not necessarily. Right. What's a uh, what's a food or beverage brand, non necessarily a client, maybe a name we don't even know about that you're really digging right now, mm, personally? That's a great question. Um, man, what am I really digging right now? Uh, you know what I'm I love is um, some of the because you know pandemic. I'm obviously drinking more at home right. <laughs> and period. Same. Um, a lot of the functional type products out there, like the Flying Embers, sort of hard kombuchas, or uh, Pulp Culture, which is sort of like um, a functional, um, uh, sort of a tea, sort of apple cider yep. based based products. I'm loving those. You know, it, it's making me feel a little bit better about sort of drinking so much while, totally. while I'm stuck at home. Totally. Um, and, uh, you know, the taste is great. And I love that there's sort of an effort uh, to sort of make something that historically been just viewed at as, you know, bad for you, a little bit better for you, right? Totally. And, uh, you know, I, I would, for, first of all, I feel the same exact way. And I think that what I'm noticing a lot, and I would have to imagine you probably 10x me in the, in the way that you network in this space, um, this like going out and just like getting hammered at a bar and like drinking like Jameson and like beers like, yeah. in college is like less attractive these days. I'm invited more and more to like, not not only alcohol, but like workout, workout meetings, yes. bike hike meetings, even in New York where it's less so, it's, it's obviously more in California, Colorado, but like, right. let's get together and have that. And then the, the sort of crossroads of that is a functional, let's not get hammered, but let's try a new like house or a new type of alcohol, new type of spirit that's not meant to be debauchery it's yes. more about social and that you can actually have a functional conversation instead of getting so hammered we don't actually remember what we said. Yep. That old boys club, and we're probably on the tail end of that given our age yeah. and living in New York City, is going. That's more people older than us and younger than us is certainly more that and more functional beverages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I I totally agree. I mean, the the days of binge drinking are, are really coming to an end. Um, the younger people are doing it so much less. I think people our age are doing it less and less. And I agree, I'm doing so many more business meetings, like that's a workout or a hike or something like that. Um, and then you even see some of these uh, gyms like um, Grit down on 16th Street, which is like, you know, like a boxing concept, but then they also have a bar yeah. that's like doing sort of like healthy, like beverages, in and on the way out, they'll have like a hard kombucha or they'll have like, you know, like a gluten-free vodka shot or something like that, yeah. that are merging those two, right? But it's all more in moderation. It's all a, it's all sort of a, um, 
a focus on sort of like better ingredients, functionality, sort of, you know, less sugar, less calories, let's do less bad for you when we do this. Um, and I think that's a super positive, you know, obviously overall, but, um, you know, in just terms of my lifestyle, I mean, I'm happy to wake up with less and less hangovers. For sure. Any, um, any CPG or beverage brand that you like grew up on that is like completely out of your life right now, but you're shocked because it was just some, such a big part of like your younger <laughs> life. A man, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess stuff that, I mean, plenty of them, right. uh, you know, I mean, I'd say if you asked like a seven-year-old Ryan Lewenden whether, you know, he'd uh, never drink, eat Captain Crunch Crunch Berries again, you know, after he was like nine right. or 10 or 12 years old, I probably would have thought you're crazy because I love those things, right. but it's not something that I would like, you know, ever touch again. Right. Um, and you know, you've even seen in that area, you've seen like the three wishes and the magic spoons of the world sort yeah. of trying to explore that area and reinvent it for today, for today's consumer. But yeah, I think yeah. that's the big one is like both of those two categories that we just touched on. Like there was this sort of like better for you set that was like early and like, and like hippie-esque in the seventies and eighties and Whole Foods. And then obviously Kine came in and, and Daniel like did all this he like made a statement in the store. Now every store is doing the core stuff, the bars and all that kind of yep. stuff. It's the pressing out of the of the cereal, the alcohol, yep. all better for you. Because, you, you know, it's not a fad anymore. Keto might be a fad, but he, eating better food and caring about your labels is not a fad. I so see. at every touch point, you know, you're not, you don't want to only eat healthy snacks during the day or meals and then eat like crap in the margins or drink something that's going to make you feel terrible with a yep. lot of weird ingredients in it. So... I think that's a nice white space. And it's crazy to say, cause like they, it seems like there's a new brand every day, but it's cause there is like still some stretching that you can do, especially at a competitive price point, right? Like I feel like reaching middle America, not yeah. just New York and LA um, and coming in at that is like, a, is like a nice way to go. And it seems like we're headed there. So that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, and it's funny, I told my kids about Twinkies the other day <laughs> and then we, we like looked it up and like saw the ingredients, like you couldn't, like, it was yeah. like, what is this thing? And it yeah. lasts like 22 years or some crazy thing. Yep. So uh, I'm glad, I'm better off that we're not eating those things these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, and I agree. I think there's still a lot of sort of, there's a lot of room to sort of grow in both the center of the store generally and sort of innovation and sort of improving some of that better for you stuff, yep. but also in this sort of indulgent, the confectionery areas, um, you know, like, um, smart tart, which is like doing better for you pop tarts. And you got the smashmallows of the world yep. sort of reinventing the marshmallows places that aren't necessarily good for you, but like people still like to indulge, but like better making options. that a bit better for you. I think there's a lot of room to sort of run in, in, in those areas still. Totally. Um, any parting notes or thoughts that are on your mind as I'm sitting here today? Yeah, I mean, one, thank you so much for having me. This is great. I mean, it was great to even see people, totally. <laughs> um, but uh, great to have a conversation about this. And, um, you know, I guess just for everybody, you know, hang in there. Uh, I think, um, you know, I, I think in this sort of better for your CPG world, um, we're in for a rough ride like everybody else. But, um, you know, people aren't going to start eating worse, like the consumer products, the better for your consumer products industry still is, is a strong industry that's gonna move forward. And the people that come out on the other side of this, the people that survive this tough time that come out on the other side are gonna sort of be battle tested and they're gonna be some of the strongest brands, you know, going forward that we find. Um, I found it in the last financial crisis, you know, the 
the sort of the hints and the happy babies and the Siggies of the world that were able to make it through those right. on the other side became some of the most iconic brands. And the people that are building their brands now, whether they're sort of like launched and they got to do their first round of financing or they've got like a, you know, they've, they've done a number of rounds of financing, they're trying to make it through. The people that survive are going to be the sort of the brands for the next, you know, 50, 100 years that come out from this. So. Totally. I would say like I was speaking to a brand the other day and they're such on that chase to like either like get a major cash infusion or like get bought by somebody and they're not even close. Right. And this is happening. And, you know, we have access and I'm, I'm looking and, and like they're they're doing like sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year in sales on their website, like without any effort. Right. Amazing. Just whatever it is. And like they lost that fact. And I'm like, listen, you have to be a wartime general like. You're, you have a $60,000 revenue business without anything from the business that you care about. Yep. You could go lean, make it through, double down, call your customers, get one-on-one -on -one with them, have this relationship with them. And then when things open up, they will remember that. Yep. You will have harvested a community. Don't dump the IP and dump the brand because right now you're not gonna get bought from someone big. It's just crazy. And I think brands are, I think owners are considering that. Like I, I'm just gonna dump it and, and scrap. Yeah. And, and I think if, if they can stay the course, uh, I think they should, and you know, you're probably in a different position than me, but um, you know, I've even like reached out to some brands and offered consulting right now. I'm like, I feel bad for some of these brands. Yep. I'm like, you can't afford me right now, nor should you, but like, I am not commuting anymore. So in the margins of the half hour to and from my office, yep. I'm gonna try this out just for giggles and see like what happens. And I give like unbelievable advice that maybe they'll come back down the road, maybe not. I just feel good about it. Sure. And it goes back to this space of like, I just want to do good and put good into this space, right? Yeah. And I think it pays dividends. And that would be my hot take, especially on the heels of this conversation with you is like, you probably have more than you think. Um, I think most brands got into this thinking their baby was the cutest. It's why you did it. And I think they lose their way along the way because they're just so, they're chasing something they probably won't get. And then they lose sight of how great their baby is. And so they throw it out. And yeah. I think it's really important to do that. I'm certain you're not giving away free consulting advice right now in your space, but like, I think especially being a networker like you on LinkedIn and just out there, you could probably reach people like you, maybe even you to get advice, just to like have a quick conversation with, we're all sitting home. So like use your resources, use your sphere of influence to get some of these tips and advice so that you don't make maybe a fatal mistake.